Well, good morning, church family. We have uh, some bad news and some good news that we wanted to start this morning with. First, the bad news. Um, we always want the bad news first, right? Um, this morning, Shay Massengale, uh, our senior pastor, our pastor of senior adults, um, he, his father-in-law had a massive stroke, um, so they had to depart to go to Chattanooga to deal with their family. So I just want to encourage you as a faith family to be praying for Shay, pray for his wife, Rachel, um, especially as they're on their way to Chattanooga, and pray for the doctors and all of those who are dealing with uh, their Rachel's dad, Shay's father-in-law, as they continue to treat him, and uh, just ask the Lord to show himself mightily um, on their behalf. Secondly, the, the good news, as many of you know, Tanner Rogers. Tanner Rogers is a football coach here at Elka, uh, but Tanner and his wife, uh, Sarah, they introduced their new baby to the world today at 8.30ish, 8.28ish, and uh, so they had a healthy baby girl. Um, Anna Joyce is her name. And uh, so she came around 828. So I'm going to begin the day today in prayer, uh, praying specifically for those two things, and then we'll jump in this morning. Father, thank you for how good and gracious you are to us. And we do pray for our brother and sister in Christ, Shay and Rachel Massengale. We ask you, Lord, to comfort them as they're on their drive to Chattanooga to protect them um, as they journey up there. We also pray for her, uh, Rachel's father, that God, you would surround him. Uh, with people who are believers, with doctors, and give them wisdom, and nurses give them wisdom uh, to treat him accordingly. And we pray that we know that you are uh, the great physician, and we pray that you would intervene in that situation, and that most importantly, that as all of this goes on, that your glory would go forth, that you would use this situation to bring glory to yourself, that if there are people who don't know you, that they would see the light of the gospel through their family um, as they relate to them and interact with them, and that, God, you would allow this just to be a, a, a bad situation that turns out to be a really good situation with many people maybe coming to know you as a result. God, thank you for new life um, and Anna Joyce. Thank you for Tanner and Sarah and bringing them to this point where they could deliver a healthy baby today. And we do pray that you continue to give them all the strength that they're going to need um, as they lose hours of sleep tending to uh, this newborn, uh, that you would just surround them with people who love them, care about them, and encourage them each and every step of the way. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So next weekend, okay, we're going to begin a new sermon series called Healthy Church, all right? So next weekend, we're going to begin a new sermon series called Healthy Church. We're going to be walking through the book of 1 Timothy. There are some series that we walk through here that are real uh, that are important to us devotionally, okay? Like when we walk through David, I heard so many of you come to me saying how different sermons uh, were, were really impacting you in a variety of different ways. Um, okay, so that devotionally, it helped you as you grew as a child of God, um, and it formed and shaped you as a child of God um, in your own individual lives. First Timothy is going to be more about us as a church. It's going to form and shape us as a congregation, all right? Timothy is a book that's really just a manual for how you do church, um, so we're going to dive into it, and we're going to see what the scriptures say about how to do church, and, uh, and we'll be uh, doing that all the way up until about Easter, so you can have a long, uh, I guess, what, seven, eight weeks there to where you can kind of study that book with us. But if you want to get ahead of us, go ahead. Get ahead of us. Start reading it. It will make, I think, uh, this entire series a little bit more rich for you. But today, we're concluding the series that we've been in, a series called uh, Together. And this is what we're trying to shoot for through the series. What we're really saying is we want to be a body that functions in togetherness. Uh, we even put as the subtitle of this series, We Are a Family, or We Are Family. 
And the reason for that is because we want to be a unified body. We believe, because Scripture tells us, we talked about this in Psalm 133, uh, that Scripture tells us that when we function in a way that is unified, not uniform, but when we function in a way that's unified, that's when God uh, begins to work in and through us. And we want to see God do a mighty work that only He's capable of, both in our lives and through our lives, both as individuals and as a congregation. And as a result of that, we need to be a unified body in order for that to happen. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Ephesians. Jesse was there last weekend in the book of Ephesians. He talked about chapter 2. Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Jesse kind of alluded to this last week, but Ephesians is divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about doctrine. God is teaching us who he is, and we're going to be talking about why that matters even today. But then in the back half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, it's all about practical living. So Paul, when he talks and writes this letter to the church of Ephesus, he spends the first half of the book really just, just kind of diving deep into doctrine, who they are in Christ. Most importantly, most significantly, is he begins in chapter 1 with reminding them of their identity in Jesus. And I believe this is, um, this is very, very foundational in the life of Christ or in the life of a believer to know who they are in their relationship with Christ. So he begins there with their identity. He reminds them, you are a chosen people, he says. You're adopted into the family of God. And because you've been adopted into this family with God as being the father, you are now a co-heir with Christ Jesus. You are heirs to the throne. And he goes further to say, you are the saved children of the Lord, that you are now being reconciled to God. And he spends the first three chapters kind of ingraining that within the people of Ephesus. And he wants them to know that. He wants us to know that. And then he shifts after chapter 2 into chapter 3, still in that doctrine segment. And he wants these people to know not only are you in Christ, you're, you have a new identity in him, but why does that actually matter? What purpose do you really serve as you remain here on earth as a new child of God in Christ? So he tells them why we exist. He tells us why we exist. We exist so that we might bring glory to God. That's why I live. That's why you live. That's why our church exists. We are here so that we might bring glory to the Father. And what's interesting about this text of Scripture, this book, really, of Scripture, Ephesians, is that the church of Ephesus is a growing church. They're, they see movement. Things are happening. And Paul's writing to them in the midst of things happening and as, as they continue to grow. And one of the most important principles that he continues to allude to throughout the book, that he comes back to over and over again throughout the book, it's none other than this topic on unity. Unity, church family, has a purpose. And we need to understand that. that. That unity is not something that we achieve. It's something that's given to us as a gift from God. But unity it has a purpose. The purpose of our unity is so that God might be glorified. When we are not unified, God is not glorified. When we are unified, God does indeed receive glory. So we glorify God together when we live in unity with each other. I'll say that again. It's going to be on the screen. We glorify God together 
when we live in unity with each other. Now, I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to challenge you to do me a favor, okay? I want this statement, if you write it down, write it down. You can take a picture, however you choose to do. But I want this statement to echo in the back of your head each and every time the enemy begins to sow seeds of discord. Wait. You, you, you get caught up in the mess of, of discord, some, something you know, divisive begins to happen, and you go straight here. Listen, I've got to fight for unity because I know that God gets glory when I remain unified. And any time that there's discord or division or dissension between me and a brother in Christ, I know I have to go get it right immediately. Otherwise, God won't get glory from us. And we fight for this together. But here's what we need to know. When discord is present we reduce our ability to glorify God. When dissension, discord, or division is present, we reduce our ability to bring God glory. In other words, the church exists as really a light to a watching world. And the light that we are radiating is the light of the glory of God to a watching world. And when you and I allow dissension or division or discord to creep into the body of Christ, we're, we're, we're functioning like the Dilmer switch. We're turning the light of the world down until eventually we turn it off. And the, and the world doesn't see any distinction between us and them because like that's exactly how we act and they're acting just like us. That's exactly what we do. They're acting just like us. The gossip and the slander and the backbiting and the betrayal and all the things that go with discord and dissension. So Ephesians here is a growing church, and Paul knew that this church was growing, and Paul knew that Satan's strategy is always to steal, kill, and destroy. So if this church is growing, at some point Satan's going to start getting involved, and he's going to try to sow seeds of division so that all of a sudden that church won't be as effective as they once were. The key to ineffective church life, the key to being an ineffective Christian is to allow discord to exist between you and a brother or sister in Christ. If you want to glorify Satan, hell, and the grave, just allow dissension and division to manifest and exist in your life. So Paul understood that, and he wanted the people of God to fight hard against this. So he comes here to Ephesians chapter 4, and he tells us really two things. He draws our attention to two things. First, he gives us a call to unity. First, he gives us a call to unity. Now, I want you to watch what he says here in chapter 4, verse 1. It's a beautiful text of scripture, by the way. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Think of all the things, the images that come to your mind when you think of a prisoner, period. You're bound to whatever it is. And he says, I'm a prisoner to the Lord. I'm a slave to the Lord. I exist not for myself. I exist for the Lord. He says, I urge you to walk. The original Greek here, the, the, the tense here, means that you continually walk, that you never stop walking, that you keep walking, and you keep walking. Even when it's tough, you continue to walk. My wife and I, over two weeks ago now, we walked through New York, okay, and it was rainy, so I wore some boots that had terrible soles, and to this day, both of my big toes are killing me, all right? They both hurt. So if you see me walking like a penguin, that's why I'm walking like that. My big toes hurt. But you know what? Even, even when they hurt, I still have to walk. I still have to get up and get going so that I can go from point A to point B. And Paul's saying there's not a time to stop. 
You keep walking. But where do we walk, Paul? What do you want us to do? He says, in a worthy manner or a manner worthy. You know what this means? It means with symmetry, with balance. I want you to continually walk with balance. Well, what does that mean? Balance between what? Remember, chapters 1 through 3 were all about doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6 are all about practical living. He's saying, so I want you to continually walk, and I want there to be balance between what you believe about God and what you actually live in your independent lives. Like, I want what you say you believe to match what you actually do in your life. I want your behaviors to be an overflow of what you believe. So if you really believe that God is sovereign, I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of making sure that everybody knows you believe that God's sovereign. You can't say God is sovereign, but when something happens, all of a sudden you start to question him. You have to trust that he is sovereign. You follow me? So he's saying that there needs to be balance between what you believe about God and the behaviors that you actually live. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Man, this word right here, calling, gets thrown around a lot in church circles. And, and, and so much so that we've confused what calling actually is. You, you, there's really two callings in Scripture. There's calling to salvation, we know that, and there's calling to ministry, per se. So calling to salvation is included in what Paul's asking you to do here. Walking a manner that's worthy of your calling. If you're a child of God, you should walk in a way that proves that you're a child of God. And what he's saying is this is an effectual calling. That the God of the universe who created you to exist in perfect harmony with him, even though you did it because you're a sinner, he still loved you so much that in his sovereignty he came and he redeemed you from that sin. I want you to walk, Paul says, in a manner that's worthy of that. But it's not, it's not, it doesn't only include, it's not exclusive to just calling to salvation. It's also calling to service. The way that you live, your service, should be a direct indicator that you are indeed a child of God. You remember, Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He said, you are God's workmanship. You've been saved by God. The effectual calling you've experienced because you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. So you are now God's workmanship. This is Ephesians 2.10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you're not just saved, effectual calling, but you're also created for good works. Your life and your behavior should, should be a, an evidence, if you will, of the calling that you have in your salvation. And Paul is saying, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want you to continue to walk that path. Paul says there's going to be days it's going to be tough. There's going to be moments where you're not going to want to do it. And there are going to be times where your big toes hurt. But you've got to get up and you've got to continue to walk in a way that's worthy of your calling. And then this is what he says in verse 3. He says, eager. That word eager could be translated uh, to, to be working diligently. It could also be translated as saying making every effort. Some of your translations might say that. Making every effort or eagerly to maintain. You know what maintain means? It means maintain. It's like maintenance. We're in a building right? We're the church, but the church is gathered in a building. And this building has to be maintained. You, you see one thunderstorm outside with a lot of rain, and you're going to see a leak in one, you know, in our roof, because there's one somewhere, I promise you. 
And guess what we have to do to maintain the building? We have to plug the hole so that the water doesn't damage everything around it. You follow me? So we provide maintenance. We paint walls around here to provide maintenance. But we're not creating anything. We're just maintaining what's already given to us. And that is exactly what Paul is saying saying here. He says, work diligently. Make every effort to keep. To keep what? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying if there is anything that you fight hard for as a church family, fight hard for unity. Make sure that you do maintenance where maintenance needs to be done so that the church can remain unified. Dr. Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, he says it this way. Unity is kept, not created. Unity is a gift of God to us as the redeemed children of God. We are redeemed by him, and we exist in one family. We are family, and we are together, and it's a gift that God has given to us to be a unified body. We have unity because of Christ, but we forfeit that unity when we start to indulge in sin. When we allow division, when we allow discord, when we allow our hearts to grow bitter towards people, we are allowing Satan to win, and we are allowing unity to dissipate. Unity is a gift from God, and we are called, the Bible says, to steward and to fight for it. So Paul calls us first to unity. But then there's a second thing that Paul does. Not only does he call us to unity, but he tells us, secondly, the behaviors of unity. And this is where it's going to get good, okay? So he's going to tell us the behaviors of, the, uh, of unity. If we're a unified body, and if you have unity in and of your own self, you're going to see certain behaviors that come out of you that are evidence that you're functioning in the way that God wants you to function. He says it this way. Let's go back to verse 1, and then we're going to read verse 2. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he says this in verse 2. So he's talking about how we're supposed to walk. We're supposed to continually walk in this way. And this is what he says. Walk with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He says as the unified body of Christ, the very first piece of evidence that you can see in your life if your behaviors match what you believe is that you will be a man or a woman who walks with humility. Humility is considered by many to be the highest virtue. Tim Keller said that humility is not about thinking about yourself less. Humility is about not thinking of yourself at all. It's not so that you can just decrease and not be as important. It's where you don't exist at all. That you no longer think selfishly, that you no longer think that you're the center of your own universe, that you no longer think that your preferences or opinions matter. That you, you elevate the things of God above self each and every time. It's when we value others more highly than ourselves, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, consider the interest of others more important than your own. That's humble. It's when you say, you know what, it is 11 degrees outside, but my neighbor's trash can is overflowing, and they're not home, and I'm going to actually go and take their trash to the road so that they can be picked up in the morning. Your interests are, I ain't getting out there in 11-degree weather. I don't care who it's for. 
But humility says, you know what, I'm going to consider their interests above my own. And we could go on a tangent with how many scenarios we could paint. I just thought of that one. I don't know why. I have neighbors that, I guess, overflow their trash all the time. It's my in-laws. They live next door. But humility is about putting to death selfish ambition. That's what it is. It's, a, it's about decapitating, if you will. I know that's gory. A, self, a self-centered lifestyle. It's putting that life to death. When we're willing to be last and others can be first. Students, we, we do this on our retreats and, and sometimes we, we hear a little you know, jawing back and forth. But we're like, hey, we're about to eat and we're going to pray and bless the food and y'all go eat. And then one of the adults will say, ladies first. And all the guys are like, ladies first, I want to get there. All the Doritos are going to be gone. You're an arrogant child. I'm just kidding. But in a world that's obsessed, obsessed with self-image, a world that's obsessed with, obsessed with self-importance or even self-promotion in the virtual world nowadays, Jesus says, this is not the way a child of God should behave. When you're walking in a way that's worthy of your calling, you're not trying to draw attention to you. You exist not for you and your own self-promotion, your own self-glory. You exist for God and God alone, and you want to bring him glory in all that you do. It's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He said, clothe yourself. Clothe yourself with what? With humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. So Paul says, one evidence that you are walking in a way that's worthy of your calling is that you walk in humility. But there's a second evidence here too. Secondly, gentleness. He says, secondly, gentleness. The church is full of broken people, isn't it? I mean, it is. And and for all honest, if I ask who was broken in the room today, every hand should go up because we're all broken in some way, in some capacity. And when you think about this, it it makes a lot of sense. You, You take a lot of broken people and mix them with even more broken people and the more broken people you have, the, it increases your chances of having division, right? It increases your chances of having discord. See, see, just because we're children of God does not mean that we don't have deficiencies. You know, and on one hand, for some of you, that's encouraging because you feel like you're a child of God and you have this standard that you have to live up to and you keep failing it miserably and you beat yourself up like alive because of the fact that you keep failing to reach the standard that you're never going to be able to reach on this side of heaven. So it encourages you to know that. But on the other sense, it's, it's pretty discouraging. And you, you mean to tell me not only do I have deficiencies, but everyone that's in this room has deficiencies too? And now with my deficiencies mixing with their deficiencies, man, that is a recipe for disaster. That's what it is. People in the church, they will hurt you. I wish I could stand here today and say, you know what, you need to get in church because those are the only people who are going to be true to you and faithful to you and love you and not, you know, not stab you in the back and not leave you. Not, that is just a lie. And you know it because many of you, you have experienced it in some way or another. In my short life right now, I keep saying short because everybody tells me how old I am because I have two hurt toes. So in my life right now, I've been in churches that have burned me. 
And chances are you've been in churches that have burned you too. And for some of you, you, you just started coming back to church because you've suffered from so much church hurt. And it's relief to you that you finally found a place where you don't have, have to feel that pain anymore. People will hurt you. They will sin against you. They'll betray you. They'll talk about you negatively behind your back. The question on the table then is how do you respond? Do you respond to that with gentleness? See, gentleness does not come naturally to us. You remember what I told you last year in 2023, the beginning, I told you I had a word for the year. You remember what the word was? It was gentleness. Because even I, I struggle with gentleness. And chances are you struggle with gentleness as well. Instead, when someone talks bad about me, guess what I want to do? I want to get revenge. I want to retaliate. When someone hurts me, I want them to hurt too. And the chances are you are exactly like that. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. Let's put our egos to death so that the Spirit of God can live in and through us. Can we do that as a body of Christ? Can can we make an allegiance, a vow that says, you know what, I'm going to put my own ego to death so that the Spirit of God can live through me in a way that will cause the church to thrive and to flourish for God's glory before an outside world. But the good news is this. Even though we come with our deficiencies and even though we come with our struggles and even though we come with our heartaches and our pains and our betrayals and even though we come with all of that baggage, the God of the gospel says this. I can redeem that too. I can redeem that too. He redeemed you from the pit of hell. He saved you from the domain of darkness. But you're now being saved. You're continuing to work out your own salvation here on this earth by becoming more and more like Christ. And it's not natural for us to do the things that Christ did. It's the sinner in us that rebels against that. But what Christ is saying is now you have the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives within you, which was 100% God, now dwelling within you. And now you're capable of being redeemed even in that struggle that you have. You don't have to be that angry man anymore. You don't have to be that stubborn, backbiting sinner anymore because the Spirit of God is going to awaken your soul and he's going to allow you to be different. He's going to allow you to be more like Christ. So when we walk in this way, we see humility. We see gentleness. There's a third thing. We see patience. Oh, boy. Listen, I rehearse this every Sunday, and you probably can't tell, but I do. But here's the truth. When I said patience today, I just quit. I was like, God, I can't say patience. My wife will sit there and be like, he's a liar. I'm the most impatient person on the planet. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and put that on the table. And this is something the Lord has to redeem. I don't take pride in my impatience. And the reason I don't take pride in it is because I know that it is a part of me that doesn't look like Jesus. And I started to think about how great of a sinner I am against him and how patient he was with me to get me to where I am. And then I started to think how quickly I give up on people who sin against me. And the Lord started to show me, you know what, you're not being patient like me. It took me seven years, Trey, to get you to where you are. And you had one conversation with that dude and he's not there yet. You've got to be patient and let me continue to work. He's my workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Just like I worked on you, I'm going to work on them, and I'm going to use you to work on them, just like I use others to work on you. 
I want you to be patient. See, the word patient is made up of two words, the word long and the word suffering. So the word patient actually translates as the word to suffer long. That's what patience means. And what, is, what, what, this, what Paul is saying is, he's saying life isn't always easy among the people of God. And the reason it's not always easy is because people are difficult. What this guy likes, that guy doesn't like. And what she wants, he, she doesn't want. Like, people are difficult. They're going to come with opinions and they're going to come with preferences and they're going to make sure their opinions or preferences are known. That's just how people are. And Paul is saying, we like to be pampered. And when people don't pamper us, we get a little upset. You've seen this in your own lives. I'm sure I've seen it in mine. But when these things start to happen, my natural reaction is not to be patient. My natural reaction to offensive people is typically retaliation. And Paul says, that's not how the church is going to bring glory to God. Trey, if you want this church to bring glory to God, if we want this church to bring glory to God, we cannot respond to offensive people with retaliation. And I know that I hate diving into this, but the Bible does, so I think I need to. But the year 2024 is set up to be a very painful year. Guys, I, I say this a lot here, and I, I say it really as a warning because I, tr I believe it to be true, but every time there's an election, the world around us is going to work hard to divide us. And you and I have got to anchor ourselves in something so that we're not carried away by the wind. And in this very text that we're talking about today, it talks about how we have to mature in the gospel of Jesus so that our feet can be anchored there so that when the wind of the world blows against us, we're steady and stable and we don't move. That's what Paul is after here with this church. He says, patience is the ability to resist that tendency of retaliating. It's the ability to resist that tendency to seek revenge. It's, it's the ability, patience is, to resist the tendency to make my opinion or preference known. You know where we see this best? Where we see it best? In the life of Christ. Think of how patient of a father he was with his children. Think about spending day in and day out with one of his disciples that he already knew that at the end of all of this, he's going to betray me, and I'm still going to be faithful, and I'm still going to work, and I'm still going to teach, and I'm still going to instruct I'm still going to invite him to be a part of everywhere we go and everything that we do. He's still going to dine at my table. And I know that he's going to betray me. Patient, patient father. So we see patience, humility, gentleness, patience. Fourth, we see forbearance. Forbearance. Now, the issue here, um, let's read it in verse 2. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The emphasis here is the need to forgive. When you bear with one another in love, you become a lot more forgiving to the people who have hurt you. In other words, this picture that's being painted here with, of the words bearing with one another in love is a picture of restraint. You, you know what Paul was saying? And this fascinates me. Paul is saying, hey, you know those people that you need to restrain, you have to like practice restraint so you don't 
lash out on them, you need to make room in your life for those people. That is not what we naturally do. Paul was saying, I want you to make room for the people who offend you, for the people who hurt you, to be involved in your life. Uh, Judas, Judas should be coming to our minds, like, instantly. Think about what Paul's saying to the church. We are called into this family. And as a family, we are called to bear with one another in love. In other words, what that means is we are called into this family to put up with each other. We are called in this, into this family to forgive each other. And for some reason, we read the word forgive as the word flee. I don't know if we just get to the F word and we forget it. Oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Awful. I don't know if we get to the, uh, you know, instead of reading forgive, we read flee. And we think it's natural for me to, to flee rather than to forgive. Why do we do that? Because we have been indoctrinated by the culture in which we live. The culture in which we live is a very individualistic culture. The culture in which we live, everything revolves around us. And if you're doing things that make me happy, I come. If you're doing things that make me sad, I, I, I just flee, I leave. And the Bible is saying that that's not the church. When you have to rebuke each other and correct each other and teach each other and help each other and be involved in each other's life like steadily on any given day or time, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be times where there's friction. There's going to be times where there is tension. But by the grace of God and the spirit that now indwells within you, you don't have an identity of the world. You have an identity that is in Christ. You don't get to flee from the family. You forgive. And when you forgive... You're fighting for God's glory to be made known before a watching world. I want you to think real quickly, because I know what happens. I want you to think real quickly about a friend that's in your circle that quite frankly loves to divide. And he will paint it and justify it, or she will, in every way possible. Well, I ain't trying to talk bad, but this is what I think about her. I'm not really trying to da-da-da, but he said da-da-da. What about the phone call you get where someone calls and says, well, what did you think about what Trey said? You know what they're doing. I'm just being honest because it, it has to happen. It happens everywhere. You do understand what that person is eliciting. They want a response out of you that agrees with what they think. And if that's the case, guess what? You guys can be united. We went and watched the show Wicked. My wife and I. And you know what? one of the, the, the things that stuck out to me in the, the, the show Wicked? It was this phrase. You want to see unity? we got to create a common enemy. Oh, how true is that? Me and my wife will always be unified if you're an enemy of ours because we'll talk about you all the time. <laughs> and some of you as friend groups, that's what you do. You want, to, you want to see unity happen between us? Well, let's find somebody that can be our enemy and let's make them the subject of our conversation so that we can agree against them. And guess what you're doing? You are defaming the glory of God. At some point as a church, the glory of God has to matter more than the glory of self. It has to. And we've got to fight hard for God to be glorified among us. These are our behaviors, humility, gentleness. Man, that was not gentle, was it? Patience, bearing with one another in love. But let's be hard, or let's be, let's be honest. It's, it's hard to maintain unity. Man, this is not an easy feat. It's hard to maintain 
unity. We live, like I said, in an individualistic society, and we forget that we function as a family. I want you to understand this. Why is unity important? Why is unity important? Why is this something that I'm so passionate about today? Two things. First, unity is critical for your own maturity. If you flee every time something doesn't go your way, God can't conform you into his, into the image of his son. Because there's a lot of things that we do that just don't look like Jesus, and someone's going to bring that up to us, and instead of receiving it with humility, we're going to buck against it, and God, God's like, well, I got I to do it a different way. So it's about your own maturity. Verses 12, it says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to what? To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful, or deceitful schemes. Paul's saying unity is critical in your life so that you can mature in Christ-likeness. So fight for it. But there's a second thing. Not only is unity critical for your maturity, but unity is critical to the mission. When we talk about maturity, there are probably some of you here who, have, who, have, who are still, you're dating the church, you just haven't married the church yet. You follow me? Like, you've been coming for like 10 years and you're just not making a commitment. And I get that. I get that because you're, you're testing the waters to see if, if this is going to hurt you. For some of you, to mature in Christ's likeness, you've got you've to marry the church. You've got to marry the church. And some of you, you're married to the church. It's just the truth. But you know what? You don't ever come home. I mean, just being honest, like you never come home. Everything else has preoccupied your time and your attention, and you've prioritized all these other things. In order for this to work properly, you gotta, you got you to gotta marry the church and come home. I mean, do you really think Kayla and I would make it if I never showed up? No. And I don't just show up for her. I show up for my kids. I show up for our God who's called me to do that. So that's what maturity looks like. So by the way, Discover's coming. Remember, we just talked about that. So that, that's a good place to take your next step. So unity is critical for your maturity, but it's critical for the mission. Listen to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which, listen, it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. John says the same thing in John chapter 17, verse 20. He says it this way. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why does he want unity? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why is it important that he, they see oneness? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you have sent me. He says it twice. Unity is critical for the mission of God. Tom Schreiner said this quote. It's going to be on your screen, and I absolutely love it. This is what he says. 
Jesus prayed that believers would be united, and yet the unity of the believer is not his ultimate concern. Isn't that interesting? He prayed for such unity for the sake of the world so that the world would realize that the Father sent the Son. Listen, when you and I are not united, it's really not about you and I. When you and I are not united, it's about the gospel going forth before a watching world. You and I are hindering, impeding the progress of the Spirit of God as he works in the life of of an unbelieved, unregenerate person. He wants to save them. We impede the progress of that work when we aren't unified. And he's saying, but when you are unified, you're aiding, you're helping, you're a part of the work of God so that those unredeemed children might become redeemed children and be a part of your family. Hmm, I don't think y'all got that. I don't know. So here's what we're going to do. Matt's coming out, and today we're ending completely differently than what we typically do. There are three prayer points that we as a congregation, I think we just need to pray together. You can pray with your spouse, you can pray by yourself, you can pray up here at front, you can pray in the balcony, wherever you want to go, you can, you can pray. But there are three prayer points. I just want to guide you through this. Now, if you're a guest here today, I hope you'll see our heart. Our heart is that we want our city to see Jesus. And our heart is that we want to be a family that's unified up under the banner and the gospel of Christ Jesus. And, and we're, we're willing to do whatever it takes for that to happen. We would love for you to be a part of that, but we invite you to pray through these things with us. So right now, wherever you are, you can prepare your heart in the posture of prayer. I'm just gonna ask you and invite you to go ahead right now and just start praying to God. Clean your heart. Say, Lord, you know the the sin, the wickedness, the, the evil that's in me. I'm asking you right now just to expose it and help me deal with it. And you can pray this promise that if you confess your sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. He says that he is willing to purify you from all unrighteousness. Our first point of prayer as a congregation is this. We wanna pray for unity in your own individual life. Pray for unity in your own individual life. Ask God to reveal to you where division might exist. Ask God to reveal to you where are some areas of my life that, man, I've just allowed seeds of discord to grow. I want you to remember 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. He says, aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. As the Lord is bringing areas in your life right now to your attention where dissension exists, discord exists, or division exists, I want you right now to God to commit yourself to doing two things. I want to ask you to commit yourself to God to say, Lord, I'm going to seek forgiveness from that person. I'm committing today that I'm going to go to that brother, that sister, that family member, that friend, and I'm going to seek forgiveness from them. Secondly, before God commit that, not only will you seek forgiveness, but you will give forgiveness. That person who has hurt you or betrayed you, 
or called you someone's heartache, that today you will say, you know what, I want to forgive them because I want to protect my heart from growing bitter. I want to protect the glory of God from not being able to go forth. I'm going to get it right. So pray for unity in your own life. Secondly, I want to invite you to pray for unity in our church. Pray for unity in our church. See, when the church is divided, it's a clear sign of two things. One, that we are not daily surrendering and submitting our lives to Christ. So before God say, Lord, forgive me for not daily surrendering my life to you. And then secondly, we're painting a false picture of Jesus to a watching world. So pray for unity in our church. Pray that our church would be attractive to our community because the love and power of God that runs through our veins. Say, Lord, we want to be a unified body that brings great glory to God through our community, or to our community. And then third, this morning, as you continue to pray, pray for our church to glorify God together. That's what this series is about. Together. We are family. Ask God to do a work that only he's capable of doing in and through us, that he would glorify himself through our body. Romans chapter 15 says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our pastors and staff, they're going to come forward. If you need intercessory prayer today, we want to pray specifically for you. Maybe you don't have the courage or the boldness to go seek forgiveness or to offer forgiveness to someone who has hurt you. And maybe you want to ask one of these, hey, would you pray for me that that God would give me boldness and courage to deal with what he showed me today? They're here to pray for you. You can utilize them at your convenience. We're going to pray. We're going to close our time together, but you continue to pray as I pray for you. God, I come to you this morning, and I thank you for the goodness of your gospel. I thank you that even when we were outcasts or misfits, when we didn't play our part, when we chose to rebel against you, that God, you still had a plan. And your plan was to send Jesus to live the life that we did not live. And then he went and died the death that was ours to die. So thank you that you've brought redemption to our hearts and to our lives through the person of your son. And we pray that as a result of that, that you allow us to offer the same grace and same mercy to those that are in our lives that may not deserve it. God, we pray as a body that you will help us be unified that you will help us remember that our doctrinal statement is that we do have one Lord, one God, one gospel. Where we're committed to protecting that gospel at all costs. My heart and my prayer today, Lord, is that you will be honored and you'll be glorified in our community and in the world as a result of how we live inside of this room. That our behaviors will reflect accurately 
what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. God, give us the humility that we need. Give us the gentleness that we need. Help us be patient so that we can accurately reflect you. Help us bear with one another in love and not quit on each other. And we do this, God, so that you might be glorified, so that the gospel might advance, so that we, Eagles Landing First Baptist Church, might be the most attractive thing in our community. They'll say, man, those people right there just do it differently. They got it right. And I want to be a part of what they're doing. God, we want to fight hard for your glory. We want to protect your glory. And we want to protect the advancement of the gospel. So God, we ask you to give us all the tools, all the resources, all the things that we need in order to do just that. That's our prayer to you this morning. And we ask all of these things in the name, the only, matchless name of Jesus. Amen.